future like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we believe you. To believe who you are means to uh, expect great and big things. And we pray, Jesus, that our prayers uh, would not insult you. We pray that they would honor you. In Christ's name, amen. As I heard that passage being read, uh, especially before the song we just heard, but you, I just was hearing invitation, invitation, invitation from God. And uh, then I thought about what is it that blocks us from seeing that, right? What is it that stops us from seeing this inviting God that says, come to me and pray? And uh, well, the short theological answer is sin, right? Uh, That's not all of it, but that's a big part of it. I mean, the Bible teaches that um, that, uh, the desire and the skill that we have to move forward to God and forward to one another got broken. It got damaged. And so the will and the wisdom, instead of um, moving to be other-centered, gets hijacked with self-centeredness. You know, we turn in ourselves. So the, the measure of our faith becomes us. The measure of our hope and promise becomes us and not God. And thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. And um, he doesn't leave us there alone, and he also means for us as a community to move out of that place of small vision. And that's why we're spending time doing this series on one another. (laughs) We're trying to renew this idea of what it means to care for one another. What does it mean to be a community filled with God's Spirit? And what does that look like in real tangible ways? We've been going through several for the last couple weeks. And um, tonight we come to, I, I think, the most powerful one. And that is pray for one another. Pray for one another. Now, how do you feel about prayer right now? How do you feel about prayer? Is it uh, full of dynamic possibilities, or is it an exercise in futility? You know, is it something that you as partnership with God or performance before God? What is it for you? Right now, Jesus taught that prayer is actually the means by which God activates his powerful promises. And so when you and I are in partnership with God's Spirit and we come alongside one another with God, 
we behold a work of transformation, consolation, healing. We're part of that work. The longer uh, you grow in faith, the more we realize that life works by prayer. Now, how do you try to work life? Right? I mean, we all have our strategies for how we work life. Some of us just work hard to get life. Okay, what I'm talking about is here's life, here's the world, and here's the steering wheel. How are you trying to get it to go in the direction you want it to go? Maybe it's, you know, just hard work. Maybe it's charm. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe it's money. There's lots of different ways. But what happens as you begin to know God and grow in God, you realize that life actually works by prayer. The world turns by prayer. Because God is Lord of the earth. And that's how he likes to move things. And that, of course, is an act of faith, which we'll talk about. And it really turns when it's corporate prayer coming together. And you can understand why, right? I mean, God's great goal for his people is unity, love, oneness. So what would delight him more than corporate prayer? In fact, uh, you know, I really believe there are things that God would give to us, but he will only give to us if we come together corporately. And actually, my wife has been the, the big champion of that in my life. She, is, she has been, like, we'll talk about praying, and we both pray for stuff, but she would be the one that says, we need to pray together about this. Because there's a certain power that happens in corporate prayer. Because when you're serious enough to call a prayer meeting, that means you actually think things are... Things are in trouble. Like, the Presbyterians, like, the world has to be falling to call a prayer meeting, right? I mean, Presbyterians, it's like, if you know a prayer meeting's called, you'll be like, what's, what's going on? But hopefully we're growing. And uh, the Bible says lots about prayer. I just want to spend a few minutes to look at the two things that we see in James here, at least two things that jump out. And that's the call to pray and the confidence to pray. The call to pray and the confidence to pray. Now, have you noticed people's phone habits? Now, some of you are like, phone? I never call anybody. I just text, right? I'm already, you know, showing my age, right? Uh, But, you know, some people, like, if you get a call from them, it's sort of like the Presbyterian prayer meeting thing I just mentioned. Like, if you get a, a call from them, you're like, what's wrong? Right? They never call. But then there are other people, their days are basically one continuous phone call and text with some intermissions, right? That's just the way it is. And when you talk about calling on God, it's a little bit of both. I mean, here you see James mentions this idea of, uh, you know, call the elders together for prayer. There's these particular times where there's some grave circumstances. But then when you read... Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? And that little ABA formula he gives us, you pray when times are hard. You pray when times are good. You pray when you're, you're sick. You pray when you're well. You pray when you're happy. You pray when you're sad. That's more of that endless stream, right? You're just, you're praying together. And I, and I think, you know, for instance, I, I think a, a mark of this sort of praying community would be not just... We're with a friend, and they tell us 
this is going on, and we go, Let, let's stop, we need to pray about this. But maybe even they say, this happened today, and it was a great praise, and we stop and go, can we just stop for a second and praise God together? Because what he did, right? Because that's what James is saying here. That's part of the mark of what's going on. But it assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes something. It assumes a community that does life together, right? Because I'm not going to know about those things, and you're not going to know about those things. I'm not going to know when you're happy. You're not going to know when I'm sad, unless we're actually doing life together in a community. You can't pray together unless you're living together, and that means we have to push back against some things in our day and age. I mean, one thing we have to push back against is isolation. Meg was telling me that there was an article in the Post today, maybe some of you saw it, a study that they did just on the loneliness of men right now. And I've, you know, we've been hearing about this for the last couple years, but men who were just isolated and the pandemic, of course, hasn't helped, and more and more, there's just this lack of connection and friendship. By the way, there's a men's ministry here. They're holding events. That would be a chance if you're like, I'm a lonely man. <laughs> I need connection. And, and, the, and the thing that our culture constantly does is it just shoves at us. The answer to that is romantic love. And it's just not enough. You know, that's, that's the great deliverer. That's the great savior. And it's the big lie. Anybody who's married will tell you that. You still need friends. You need family. You need relationship. So there's isolation because of that. For some of us, the isolation is we grew up here and the city has changed so much through the gentrification. I've had lots of conversations of longtime residents and they talk about the community they had and it's always a memory. I remember, you know, when you know, a bunch of us lived here in this neighborhood, I remember Mrs. So-and-so was there, we run from, it's just a memory and it's gone. And then some of us, it's the opposite. We're newly transitioned, right? And all the people that we're closest to were basically FaceTime and text or an air, air, airplane right away. These are hard things and the church has to be this intentional isolation crasher. We have to do that. You know, we're going to probably tend to not do that. Let me say this. If you have an instinct and an impulse that I, I should probably reach out to that person, do it. I should probably call, do it. I should probably see if the, do it. <laughs> because cities are hard for that, right? It's just like cities are hard for isolation. But the other thing is independence. Now, earlier in James, just a couple chapters before he says this, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This sounds a lot like modern people. Yet you do not know what tomorrow brings. What is your life? It's just a mist that vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's, he's describing this mode of operation, really, of modern people where it's almost like a declare mode. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to go and do this. It's independence, and he's basically saying, you don't have any sense of how fleeting your life is. I mean, well, let me ask you this. If you thought about your last 
two or three big decisions. How many of them did you intentionally bring in corporate prayer to discern? Maybe it was a new job, maybe it was a promotion, maybe it was someone you were going to seriously date or date at all, maybe it was a move. Was your thought, I need to first bring this in a corporate prayer setting so I won't be like in declarative mode. I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. So James begins to sort of get at that in our lives. But there's also another reason we choose independence mode, and that is it's just very hard to be weak. It's very hard to be weak, and all of us have our own stories, our own families, the way we learn that, our personalities. You know, James, I love this, that word sick in the Greek has a much wider meaning than just like I'm sick physically. It can mean weak, it can mean weary, it can mean troubled in conscience, it can mean exhausted. He's saying if you're any of those things, be prayed for. Ask God to pray. You know, it's often the case we won't ask for prayer until we just can't anymore, right? Until we just can't do it anymore, and then we'll ask for prayer. Well, I want to give you some encouragement. James mentions Elijah in this passage. We'll come back to him in a second, but if you know anything about the Bible, you know Elijah was one of the great prophets. And if you know something about the Bible, too, you know that he had a rock star moment in 1 Kings 18, where God enables him to perform this miracle that totally blows away these priests, these pagan priests. But then if you just go a chapter later, he's having an emotional breakdown, and he says, God, you might as well just take my life. Because there's some opposition. And you're like, how does that happen? Well, because Elijah was weak, just like you and me. Here you have a great prophet going, God, and God just had him sleep and fed him a little bit. I think for me, personally, in the last, if I had to say what is one truth learning point in the last couple years that has hit me more than anything else, it is the compassion of Jesus. I mean, it started when some of you were here, we did this study on the humanity of Jesus. I, it may be surprising that preachers actually learn from their sermons. But I, you know, every now and then I'm like, whoa, that really stayed with me. But then I, I read a book called Gentle and Lowly, which I'd encourage all of you to read. But it was just this, it, all of a sudden, Jesus' compassion became magnetic. Like a magnet that was just pooling me. He was moving toward me. And all the times we would think, I don't deserve compassion. I've blown it again. You know, I have a so-so spiritual life. All the reasons you would think, I don't deserve passionate compassion. And that's him. And so, if there's nothing that we can't go to the Lord for, that means there's nothing that we can't go to his people for. Anything that you go to God for, you ought to be able to go to one another for. Uh, I, it, I, I just want to make an appeal to you. Because it, it might be that you're wrestling 
with a temptation that you feel like just won't let up, or you're wrestling with significant doubts about your faith, your life, whatever it is, and it may be, I don't doubt, you have prayed, you have studied, maybe you've gone to a counselor, maybe you have talked to a friend or two, but the one thing you haven't done is bring it into corporate community. You haven't come to a couple of close friends and said, I need to bring this to you, and I need you to pray for me about this. I want to ask you to do that. But there are times when leaders are called on to pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean God then says, okay, we better bring the professionals in? We better bring the experts in. Well, I'll tell you, I'm an elder, and I'm often weak in faith. This isn't so much about the particular people. It's about the office. What do I mean? When Jesus, the Son of God, came, he held the office of the great high priest, the sympathetic high priest. And so he showed mercy and grace all throughout his ministry. He occupied that office. But when he died, rose, and ascended, he didn't want to leave us like orphans. In fact, his disciples felt that was coming, and they said, listen, you're not going to leave us alone. He said, no, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. But more so, the office wasn't going to disappear. It was going to reappear in a small way with the apostles. Then after that, it was going to reappear with the eldership. So the idea of calling the elders is this idea that there is an office that God still has instituted whereby he wants to show mercy and compassion for people that need healed. So, well, then why don't we just have the elders pray for everything? Well, for the same reason you don't go to the ER for a cold. You know, there's sufficient reasons, sufficient resources, rather, by which we can pray for one another corporately, but every now and then we find ourselves in the ER, right? I mean, either literally in the ER, or emotionally in the ER, or spiritually in the ER. It's implied in this verse because James says, call for the elders. The implication seems to be the person can't go to them. They're in such a state of weakness and exhaustion, and at that point he's saying, call the elders in, and they're to pray and anoint with oil. And what's with the oil there? Is that the magic? No, the reason the prayer goes forth is because it's in the name of Jesus, not the oil. Oil on that day had some medicinal effect, but what was it? It's a symbol of spiritual power. Just like that baptism was a symbol. I'm not saying it's a sacrament, but what I'm saying is this. Just like that sign was meant to build up faith, build up faith of this community and these parents that God will be at work in that child's life. That oil is a sign that God has power to heal. That he is inclined to heal. He's inclined to do good to us. It's meant to build our faith. And I want you to notice on faith, there's no requirement of the sick person to exercise faith. You know, when you're sick, it's often very hard to have faith. When you're troubled, it's often very hard to have faith. The faith exercise is on those praying for the sick person. And what a, what a great truth that is, because, you know, maybe you've been part of a church or an experience where you were 
down in the dumps and in your mind what was haunting you was, I just don't have enough faith, that's why I'm not getting healed. In fact, there are churches and theologies that teach that. And it's terrible, it burdens troubled people. It occurred to me at some point in one of my trials in life that having faith doesn't mean that you float above it and don't feel it like everybody else. As some of you have heard me say, I don't think Job was sitting there going, I know these look like real sores, but they don't hurt at all. You know, I know I just lost my entire family, but it doesn't bother me at all. He was laid low. When you're laid low, it might be your great act of faith and say, yeah, you can come and pray for me. Okay, but I'm going to end with this. Confidence to prayer, because we've already moved into faith. Um, to build our faith, we go back to Elijah. But this is the interesting thing about it. James does not refer to the prophet Elijah. He refers to the man Elijah. Right? He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Just in case you and I would say, you know, as James has tried to build and fuel our faith, we do this a lot, right? I mean, it must madden God, but he's so forgiving, he's so loving. This, this idea that, you know, he's trying to build up our faith, and we're like shooting down, right? So at this point, James is building up our faith, and he knows that we would say, yeah, but he's a prophet. Come on, he's a prophet. So James says, he was a man just like us, had a nature just like you, and we already just said, a weak nature. And he was a righteous man, but he wasn't a perfect man. He needed the sacrifices of Israel just like everybody else. But he was a righteous man. What does that mean? Because I feel like some of us see that righteous right there, and we shrivel up, and there it's gone. We think, you know, I just was getting excited to begin to pray and think I could pray for other people. I saw that term, and I'm just like, I'm out. How do we understand that? Well, first of all, Righteous means a relative, um, how do I say this? A consistency and a sincerity in one's walk toward God. Let me give you an example. In the New Testament, you have Zachariah and Elijah, or rather, Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're childless, they're barren, and they're referred to as righteous. Well, how does that story unfold? Angel shows up and tells Zachariah, you're going to have a son, and Zachariah doesn't believe him, and he gets a little disciplined, and he can't talk. Guess what? He's still righteous. Right? Righteousness, this idea that uh, my movement toward God is sincere and consistent. I'm not a hypocrite. Intentionally so, but, I, you know, let me dive in a little bit deeper here. What is the first act of righteousness? Because what we're saying is here, the prayers of the righteous are power and effective. Let me read something from John. A crowd came up to Jesus, and they said, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent you. I think one of the reasons we take ourselves out of the, the game of prayer there is because we immediately go to works and think, I look at my life, I look at my prayer life, I look at anything, and I think, nah, I'm not a righteous person. Do you understand the first act of righteousness 
is to rest and rely on what God has given you. It's to believe in the Son and what he has done for you and I. In fact, it's really impossible to have any righteous acts that don't follow. Imagine someone that shows up to pray for you, and their disposition is this. Their disposition is the strength of my faith. I'm going to bear down on the strength of my faith, and my sincerity is going to be what turns the game here. They've just broken the second commandment. The first act of righteousness you and I do, my friends, is to say, and this is the ground for prayer, is for you to say, I believe in the one who came for me, a lost sinner. I believe in the one who shed his blood to cleanse me from my sins. I believe in the one that loved me before the foundation of the world. I believe in the one who goes after the one and leaves the 99. I believe in the one whose death not only took away all my F's, but gave me, my, gave me all his A's. I believe in the one that has not only forgiven every transgression past, present, and future, but also the one that has made me holy and blameless in his sight. I believe in the one who has made me a son and daughter who is righteous and has the full rights of sonship. I believe in the one who has given me an inheritance that never will spoil or fade. I believe in that one. Now begin to pray. You've got a whole lot in your arsenal, don't you? You can begin to pray some righteous prayers. And I, I've said this before. In fact, when we did a study a couple times ago and I mentioned that uh, the, the old like Puritans used to say they were bringing their lawsuit to God. They were going to sue God. <laughs> now, that's different what it would be in the modern way, right? It'd be like, you know, you're a what they meant was God has made all these promises in a covenant with me. He's promised himself, and there's nothing he loves better for me to bring those promises to him. That's why all the great prayers in the, in the scripture did that. Moses does that. You know, if you're going to sit there and appeal to God, this is, this is why we get caught up. When you and I pray, we appeal to our character and faithfulness, and we should do the exact opposite. If you want to pray righteous, powerful prayers, you're praying according to God's character and his faithfulness. That gives you ground to really be bold. How bold are you going to be? God, you need to answer my prayer because you know how I've lived for you. Well, I haven't really lived very well for you. But I can say to him, you've made these promises to me. You sent your son. Actually, God, if you don't come through here, it's going to look bad for you. That's what the, that's what the Old Testament saints was. That you're not going to let the nations go, what kind of God is this? I mean, this is for your name and your honor and your glory. Now, can you exploit that? Well, I guess you can try. You're not going to get real far. Because we pray according to God's will. But the point is this. We have confidence to pray. Now, let me close it out. What about the expectation? Because James says the prayer of faith will save. That would lead us to believe that everybody who prays that pray, all who have faith are healed. Well, let's just go back to sort of Bible 101 here. The Bible doesn't say everything about a topic in one place. Theology of prayer is vast and expansive. You can't just take one passage and go, this is what it means here. But even James gives us some clue. It's not just this quick, if you've got enough faith, you're going to be healed. If that were the case, Paul would have been healed. 
Timothy would have been healed. Paul actually said to him, you need a little, take a wine, take a little wine for your stomach. And when the elders show up in the prayer, it's not to displace physicians. God might heal you through a physician. He might heal you through a supernatural means. Old physicians used to say, I dress the wounds, God heals. Right? This is how it works. But there's a clue here, too, when he says, and the sick person will be raised up. Now, raised up can certainly mean raised up from a sick bed, but that's a term that often in the New Testament means the final resurrection. Okay? Final, ultimate healing. And then, I think where that leads us is go, great. Then there's no healing. So is that where this whole thing goes? It's the whole way to say, pray in faith, Glenn. And where we end up is we've got to wait for the resurrection for healing. I knew that already. My life isn't good right now. I don't think it's that, because God loves to give us foretaste and anticipation of what he's going to do. Just remember his nature. Now, I, I want to close by just trying to work this personally. And some, some of you have, you know, for years heard me mention Meg's story. Um, and because that, you know, her chronic illness has been a big part of our story as a family. That's just the way it is. And uh, so, I don't know if it was 10 years ago, the elders came and prayed for Meg and laid hands on Meg. Did her sickness go away? No. But for the last several years, she's experienced a degree of healing that we hadn't seen for a decade. Healing came, didn't it? Is she totally healed? No. That's the resurrection. None of us are going to be totally healed. I've seen God answer prayers for healing in just a few minutes. I've seen him take years. But let me tell you something. When the elders came and prayed for her, was she built up in her faith? Most certainly. And in the end, what do you think was more significant? What do you think was more lasting? You see, the word salvation here could mean physical salvation. It could mean saving of a soul. It could be saving of a body. It could be deliverance. And so when you and I come together, we need to expect God to move. But we also need to expect that God will be God. He will move when and how he wants to. Nowhere in the Bible does it say opposite to that. And so I, the way I work it out is when elders are called to pray, whether it's for you, we were just on an elders retreat and we always do a thing where people share their prayer requests, sit in the middle, we lay hands, what do I do? The whole time... I'm believing God is doing something. I might see it in a moment. I might see it in two years. I might see it at the final resurrection. But I know he's saving because he's going to be faithful to his promise to save. And so I pray in faith. But even Elijah had to keep praying. If you look back and read about it when it says Elijah with the rain, it's interesting. God told Elijah, he commanded him, I want you to prophesy that uh, there's going to be a drought, and then later you'll prophesy the rain's going to come. But then you know what he makes him do? He makes him work it out in prayer. Inch and inch by prayer, you kind of go, well, wait a second, God like flat out told the prophet, this is what I'm going to do. But the way he was going to do it was to have Elijah pray over fervently, over and over and over again. 
Why? Because it suited God's will, it suited Elijah's faith, and it suits our faith this evening. Because there was more that God was doing. So, dear friends, um, if you are a believer in Christ, you have the same ground to pray as Jesus. If you're not a believer in Christ, I'd love you to become a believer in Christ. So your prayers would mean something. But you have the same ground as Jesus. So let's pray boldly. Let's pray widely to say, God, we're praying for this, we're asking for this, but you might do something better or different. Let's pray widely. Let's pray in every season. Let's know one another. But let's come together and pray for one another. Father, uh, I think about uh, all the prayers of this community. Lord, this is far from a prayerless community. I think about uh, all the times I've heard people interceding for friends in community groups or in small clusters. Lord, uh, we want this as more. I, you know, this, this, this word doesn't come as admonishment. It comes as encouragement, Lord. We desire more. We desire greater faith. We desire that we would call prayer meetings more often because we understand the world works by prayer. We pray uh, that you would help us to be drawn to our brother and sister in their weakness. And we pray, Lord, that any of us here that feel like we're at that place where we need to say, I need people to pray for me, well, we would know we're as good as Elijah. So bless us in Christ's name. Amen.